Oh, amen. So good. Glad you're with us. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to James. We're going to be in the book of James. We're starting a new series on that book, a letter in the New Testament to, we'll talk about in just a second, the whole of the church written to you. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please let us know. We want to give you one on your way out. It's a game changer to have a Bible written in the English you can read. Maybe you're real fancy and uh, King James English is easy for you. Not for people like us, so we'd love to gift you with one on your way out. So you can follow as we go through James. We, we break down the teaching ministry at Hope Church into sort of manageable bites through stuff we call series. A series of sermons on. And we'll title those series in order to try and keep people's mind on sort of a central idea as we're pursuing what God says to us in the Bible. We always preach the Bible here, but we try to think through what are ways to help people kind of tag and catalog what it is that we're teaching. And in the book of James, you have something that is essentially extremely practical. Just practical. That's why we decided to call this one functional faith. This is stuff that if you read it, if you learn it, if you you'll try to put it into your life, you don't even have to be a Christian to see how it's wise. Well, it works and it starts to bear fruit. I'm going to endeavor through this series. We're all going to dig a little bit. We're going to see that that's, that's not the only thing that it's for, but it is certainly true. As we dig in, we're going to see that there's gospel all over and in it, that understanding what this guy understood about God, about Christ, about the walk of a Christian is subtle and detailed and perceptive. And as I was trying to think of a governing sort of illustration for what it means for it to be so functional, I tried to think about the most functional thing in my world, and I came up with my belt. I don't know how many of you have a lot of affection for your belt. My belt has been with me since seventh grade. You don't have to believe it. It's just true. I've had this belt since seventh grade. I've tried to replace it at other times. Adults should have adult things, but no. This belt is better than those belts, so I came back to it. There was a time when my body was more ample, and it was a period. Now I'm back, and the belt, he's back. And he holds everything together, and he keeps me secure, and he keeps me confident. There's something about things that just work, things that hold stuff together. We have this description of the belt of truth that you have in Scripture of the the armor that God gives us as we pursue this life in Christ. And there's this belt that holds it all together. There's something really helpful about thinking about James as a, um, a part, uh, a consistent sermon on something that's going to be jumping out all the time in your life with wisdom. Just functional, hold it all together kind of wisdom. And as we look at all these different topics that he addresses and we try to understand as much as we can about what he says, we're going to see, though, that it does. It just goes deep. It's very tip of the iceberg in the way that he is perceiving and leading and pastoring us. Let's read for a second what it is he says. James 1, we're going to just do the first four verses today, but everything we're reading is worth you just memorizing. Let's read it. James 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Heavy promise, interesting way of getting there. We're going to break it down, but it's helpful to understand where we are in the the context of the New Testament. This guy, James, is a leader in the church that's writing a letter to the church. Often in the New Testament, you have these books, but they're usually written, whoops, they're written by a specific leader to usually a specific church. That's where a lot of them get their names. We just finished a series on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians because Paul wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica. And it's really helpful and interesting because those are real places. You can go to Thessaloniki, Greece today. It's still there. And it's helpful. You're grounding what's happening in what would have been happening in that church. You're understanding more from the context of what's being said. This one, though, is different. We do have a person, this guy James, who's writing the letter. We know stuff about him, but he's not just writing to a church. He's writing to the church. How do I get there? He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, that's a word that would mean a lot to people who know the Old Testament really well or people during James's day who were Jewish. See, God built a people for himself that we call Israel. That Israel had grown into this grand kingdom. And Joshua's talking today about the enemies that pursued them, that God allowed even to defeat them because of Israel's disobedience. Their covenant unfaithfulness led to a point where God just took his name off of them. And Israel, these northern ten tribes, were defeated by the Assyrians, that massive army that came down then to mess with Judah. And while God did defeat the Assyrians against, defend Judah against the Assyrians, he then allowed Babylon to come and take out Judah. And what happened was God's people are dispersed. Many of them are destroyed, but the ones that are left are just dispersed all over the place. And what he's doing here is he's drawing our eyes to that word picture, this idea that God's people are dispersed. We don't have our central kingdom to come back to. We don't have this presence of God in the temple to go up and look at because God is doing it differently now. He's now found this new way through Christ where we are this temple, and yet we're scattered. We're not where we're supposed to be yet. There's going to be a time where he gathers us all back together, and you're able to follow that whole arc in the way that he talks about us as the dispersion. They were those that were scattered. We are those who are scattered, and they had a series of promises about how God was going to bring them back together. Those are now our promises. In Jeremiah, he talks about how God, who has scattered Israel, read, you and me, will gather us. He's going to keep us as a shepherd keeps his flock. Think about Psalm 23. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, another name for Israel, another name for us, and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Look at these pictures. Their life is going to be like a watered garden. They're not going to languish anymore. Then, 
The young women are going to rejoice in the dance. And the young men and the old are going to be merry. God says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. So even in just the first couple of verses, this James guy is taking us and he's putting us into the context of Scripture. He's inviting us into an understanding of our life now with all of its pain, all of its difficulty, all of its isolation. God, where are you? And what our life will be then and all of its promise and all of its glory and all this incredible picture of hope. And who is this guy? It's incredibly important that we think about this for a second. This guy, James, we talked about briefly last week, was the half-brother of Jesus. Mary and Joseph, while they weren't together when Mary had Jesus, they then were and had other children. He had brothers. We know this about this guy, James. It says it in other parts of Scripture. We have Jesus' mother and brothers coming to try and collect Jesus at one point in his ministry. They thought he had gone a little nuts. You would have too didn't believe in Jesus. And yet by the time we get into the New Testament, this guy James is actually a leader in the church. When Paul writes the book of Galatians in chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about James, the Lord's brother. That controversy that James is refer- or Galatians is referring to ended up in this big council where all the Christian leaders got together to try and decide a big issue in Acts chapter 15. And the one who had the last word, who made the main decision, button it up, was this guy James. And what happened? How did he go from being somebody who was around Jesus all the time and yet denied him to becoming somebody who not only believed but led out in the church and suffered and was eventually martyred for this Jesus? Well, we learn about that too in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, we get this magnificent chapter where Paul gives us this ironclad argument about Jesus and his resurrection. And he says that this resurrected Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Think about that. You would have this same arc. I hope James grew up with Jesus and while he was sinless, didn't proclaim himself Messiah, didn't go about this ministry until this moment where God leads him to John the Baptist, and he's baptized. He comes up, and he begins his ministry. So James sees this take place with Jesus, and he's not sure, and he actually doesn't even believe him. Then he watches as his brother is hung up on a Roman cross. He listens, maybe even hears his brother's rasping breath as from the cross he instructs John the apostle to care for Mary like a son. If he didn't see it, he held his mother as she wept for the death of her firstborn. And then 1 Corinthians 15. (laughs) His brother didn't stay dead. His brother came back and appeared to him resurrected. James, who would know his brother, saw his brother resurrected. Some Change took place. He was so convinced of this change that he then becomes one of Jesus' followers, servant of Jesus, and eventually leader in the church, martyr for his name. If you are new to Christianity and you are trying to figure out, how do I assess this thing? How do I know if it's true or not? A really great place to start historically is with this argument for the resurrection. Work for James. Anyway, he's writing this book, and he's writing this book of wisdom to 
us. And in this book, he begins with something heavy, which is trials. He talks about how we will experience trials and testing, suffering. We're going to have trials of various kinds. And when he picks up this theme, he's picking up a theme that we see all through the scriptures. Peter, one of the other very prominent leaders and the followers of Jesus, says in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. But then he says, why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We understand scripture by scripture. This testing, this, these trials are really like the way someone would purify metal. I don't know how many of you purify your own metal, but the process is that you heat it up. You heat it up beyond its melting point. And as it melts, the impurities in that metal either float to the top and can be skimmed away or they just burn up. What he's saying is that God takes this thing that he's given you, this faith, this, this relationship that you've begun with him, your trust in him, and he begins to strengthen it. He begins to purify it. And the means that he uses, among others, are these trials. So what kind of testing are we talking about? I think the, there's two broad categories. We're going to spend most of our time in the first. There would be the test of pain and the test of pleasure. You've got trials of various kinds. Test of pain, test of pleasure. Here's what I mean by test of pain. The question that the suffering brings into your life of, is God still good? Just allow your imagination to run for a moment. Think about the nightmare scenarios, the stuff you wake up from. I have three little girls. I don't know if you're like me, but I walk around my house, and I'm constantly looking for security threats, thinking about the windows. Are we keeping those shut in the right way? Are we keeping the blinds shut? I don't want people looking. I don't want people knowing about it. How many times I'm in bed, like done, like all the way down, comfy, and Rachel says, are we sure the doors are locked? Duh. Whoosh. I'm sure the doors are locked, but I'm not sure that I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm sure. And so I've got to get up and go and check again. Make sure everything's clunk, dud belted. Why? Those scenarios that run. You think about the movies you've seen. You think about the friends that you have. You think about the suffering of this world. That pain that comes. It can come sharp. It can come in a calamity, it can come suddenly, or it can be this slow, lengthy, seemingly unending, dull pain. What do we do with this test? How do we bear up under it? James says in another place, in James 5, we consider those who bless, I'm sorry, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. What he does is, he not only gives us the concepts, which we're talking about in the first part of James, but towards the end of James, he's reminding us of the examples of those who've been through that process. 
says in this trials that he's going to make us into something steadfast. He's producing steadfastness in us. And then he gives us examples of that process in this guy, Job. We consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You've heard of steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Who's this guy, Job? You probably read Job the first time. We talked about him at the beginning of the year. Is this guy in the Old Testament who had it all? He was the greatest man in the East. He was clearly very wealthy, but he was also very respected. And the enemy comes before the Father, God, and says, This guy, Job, is such a phony. He only loves you for the stuff. He actually doesn't even love you at all. Take away his stuff, and he'll curse you to your face. And God says... Prove it. So the enemy is allowed to destroy Job's stuff. In a moment, in a day, calamity comes, everything he's got, gone. And while he mourns, yet he worships. So the enemy comes back before God and says, no, 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 no. A man will give anything for his skin. Touch his health, he'll curse you to your face. God says, prove it. So he allows the enemy to take away Job's health, but not his life. Always governing, always totally in control of what happens. God allows this suffering. And from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, Job is racked with sores. And while he mourns, yet he worships. We hear nothing else from the enemy in the rest of the book. Then the book of Job centers in on Job's suffering. And we have 35, 38 chapters of Job addressing with his friends, friends, what's gone on. This suffering that's taking place. And he is not passive. He's not stoic. He's angry. And then he's sad. And then he worships. And then he accuses. And he's going through the full range. It's very authentic. But he does it with God. He does it before God. He's speaking to God and he's speaking about God. And in a way that these trials are affecting him, they're not separating him from God. They're causing him to actually look at God. And the final argument that God makes to Job, because God actually appears to Job in a whirlwind, is not to say why, but to say that I'm God. I have my purpose and I do what I will. And what he created in Job was steadfastness. Do you know what Job's big response was after God speaks to him and doesn't say why he did what he did. He just says, I'm God. Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke words without knowledge. He worships. How steadfast do you think Job is from then on? All of these trials produced in him a faith that was gold, a faith that would not perish. These impurities, these questions that he had about whether or not God was good, about whether or not he could trust God, were answered. And he became steadfast. The purposes of the Lord are compassionate and merciful, even when they don't seem so. These trials are coming, and they create in us steadfastness. They burn away what is the opposite. Gosh, there is just so much fake faith in the world. 
If you're somebody who's pursuing Christianity, you're just here and you're trying to ask the questions about whether or not this is true, wonderful. That's not fake faith. That is genuine inquiry. Praise God. We're so glad you're here. You're going to just mean the world to us. But what we're always trying to find and, and kind of get rid of is fake faith. These are people who we would call culturally Christian. They're just Christian in name. They don't actually follow God. They're just part of a Christian culture. It's one of the reasons that I'm so thankful to raise my children in Utah. Because here, if my kids follow the Jesus of the scriptures that I preach, they will be in the extreme minority. Meaning that if they accept it, and I pray every day that they do, if they accept him, it's really going to be have, have to be because of him. It's not going to be because they get access to cooler friends or better boyfriends. It's going to have to be because of him. This suffering burns away this fake faith. It burns away people who are just converted to our community. This is a wonderful place to be. I can understand why people want to be part of it. But we, this community, are not the point. We are a community that points. That was just, I didn't intend that. That just worked out. We are a community that points to Jesus. And if you are being converted to us as friends, well, great. But the whole point here is that you would belong that you may believe. There are some who are seeking from their faith respectability. That's becoming a smaller and smaller group as Christianity becomes less and less respectable. But there's this idea that if I, I see all these people worshiping Jesus, if I stand near Jesus, maybe I'll kind of get some of that on me. Maybe I can get some of that worship. Maybe I can get some of that respectability on me. The suffering, the, that temperature turns up and that respectability burns away. That's how Paul talked about it. He talked about having in Jesus everything and suffering. He said as an apostle, as somebody who's going around doing this and doing it real effectively, that he was filled with afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, dishonor, slander, being treated as impostors, unknown, dying, punished, sorrowful, poor, and having nothing. If you're a believer in the room, you're probably saying to yourself, pull back, Ben, pull back. <laughs> Nobody's going to want to become a Christian. You keep talking this way. And yet, Paul says that he chooses it because while he has nothing, he possesses everything. 2 Corinthians 6, look it up today, possesses everything. And why does he say that? It's not to throw out some kind of mystic riddle. He's saying that while I have nothing in this world, I have Jesus. And having Jesus... If I have nothing else, I possess everything. That's the core of Christianity. That's why trials produce in you steadfastness, because you're not going to be able to be here for anything else. And if God in his mercy will burn away all of those other things, and all I have is Jesus, well, then I too call him merciful and compassionate. That's the whole point. Now, there are these tests of pleasure, but as we run low on time together, we can talk more about it to come. There's a lot of stuff in James about the rich man who's able to, in this world, experience pleasure. 
There's so many things that can pull you away from him. And it's not just your pain and your angst and mad at him. A lot of times it's just these things that are really sweet and attractive, but he condemns. You have to say to yourself, well, what do I want here? Do I want this thing, this temptation, or do I want him? You're now asking not, is he good, but is he better? Is he better than this? And as these trials come, by God's grace, you will find this steadfastness that's able to say again and again in situations painful and situations pleasurable, I choose him. Now, please don't let this all confuse you. This is not something where I'm telling you that if you'll work harder, if you'll hold better, if you're more gritty and impressive, then you somehow will have this more heroic faith. No. What I'm saying is that God has offered you in His Son relationship, forgiveness, a cleansing, a purifying, that He is going to allow you to be in Christ His forever. But if you become His, He's going to go to work on you. He's going to allow these trials to come in order to sanctify you and purify you, and it's going to hurt. But you will, at the end of that, have this steadfastness that he says has its full effect. You becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. They used to have these spiritual gift tests that were out there where you'd answer all these questions and then they'd tell you what your spiritual gift was. You know, you're going to be great at teaching or you're going to be really great at mercy or you're going to be really great at leadership or you're going to be really great at giving. Everybody wanted that one. Or you're going to have the gift of long-suffering or administration. Those were two on there too. And we would always laugh about it because those are the two that Rachel got. <laughs> My wife, and those are the two that she's like, who wants to be administration and long-suffering? I was like, well, you know, you need those to be married to me. But, but, but the, the gift of long-suffering doesn't seem like a gift. And yet what it means is that you are able to have this hope. I told you how Peter said the same thing. Obviously, Job said it. Jesus preached this in his ministry. James is reflecting that in his letter. But Paul also says in Romans 5, Through Jesus we have obtained access by faith, this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Brothers and sisters, is that you? Is that what you're pursuing? Is that what you're finding? Is that what you're enjoying? So that in hard times and in very, very good times, you are constantly saying, Lord, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're somebody who's pursuing Christianity, is this a rock that you can build your life on? I'm telling you that it is, and I'm telling you that it's true. And there's a part of you that's saying, well, yeah, it sounds wonderful, but, and you've got your objections, let us help you with that. That's one of the great application points I have for you, is just stick around. 
Come back for next week. Give us the opportunity to get to know you and to speak in love, not in contention, but in love, and just offer for you the arguments that have made this stuff make sense for us so that you can have this same confident assurance of hope. Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would write these things down on our hearts. Use a pen of diamond, Lord. Use a pen of steel and write these things all the way down deep. That as children, we would trust you as Father to give us good medicine. And if that medicine is suffering and if that medicine is bitter, that we would still trust you. Trusting that you're merciful and compassionate. Trusting that you're producing in us steadfastness. And Father, if people in this room are investigating Christianity, I ask that by your grace you would allow them to see this beauty. Allow them to see this God who in his absolute sovereignty is able to tailor even our suffering for our good. Lord, we pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.